We'll begin our message today with a simple reading of Ephesians chapter 5, verses 30 through 32. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Our message today is entitled, Killers of Marriage, Part 2, and is a continuation of what we discussed together last week in our series on the subject of marriage, the blessing that is marriage from a biblical perspective. As we worked through our thoughts last week, it became very evident that we wouldn't have sufficient time to cover everything that I wanted to speak about, so we found an appropriate ending with the intent on continuing that focus from God's Word today, and Lord willing, we will do so. We have been discussing the institution of marriage, and basically what we've done is follow the general order that I try to focus on as I meet with someone who is about to be married and we discuss Scripture together. One of the requirements for me to perform a wedding, unless it's last minute, is that we have to go through pre-marriage counseling. And I think that's very important. It's very crucial. I made the remark last week as we began that we don't enter into many times marriage with a serious enough mindset about what we're engaging in. You think about it, we train for two years of our lives really to drive to be alone. You have one year where you're a learner and then you get your license, but before you're a learner, it takes a lot of study and we have things like driver's ed. But marriage is so much bigger of a responsibility than driving on a road. We prefer people be trained before they carry a firearm or a weapon so they know what they're doing. And many of us train with a firearm to know how to handle one, and yet people enter into marriage with no training, no instruction, no teaching. And so it's a requirement that I have before I perform a wedding that we get together and study. I always save killers of marriage for the last thing that we talk about. We spend time talking about how marriage is a blessing. We talk about the role of the husband, the leader, the head of the house, and we spend some time talking about the wife and her responsibilities to her husband and to the Lord in the home. And we end with killers of marriage, the warnings. And we understand the importance in our lives of a warning sign. If you pull up to a property and you're there, let's say you're a land surveyor like I used to be, or you read power meters as I used to do at one time. If you pull up and you're there to visit someone for any reason or to even to work and you see a sign that says, beware of dog, usually you're going to be very cautious and take it seriously and try to look for the dog and listen for the dog because if they put beware of dog, there's usually a dog that is there and it could very well attack you. We have signs driving down the interstate lane ends, shift left, shift right, merge. If we went through life with no warning signs, could you imagine how dangerous life would be? These are the warnings. These are the signposts to beware of something destructive, to beware that maybe the bridge is out up ahead, to beware not to go a certain speed. And when those of us that have sports cars, and if you have a sports car, you can probably sympathize with this. If you see a curve and it says that the recommended mile an hour is 35, that usually means that it's a challenge. Okay, let's see. Can I do 50 around the curve? 65 around the curve. Now, I've driven with several of you here, and I know that there are some of you that scare me more than others. I'm not going to say who I pointed at. Anyway, um, when we see the warning sign, when we see the danger approaching, it's helpful to understand what we're dealing with and what we're nearing. And so what we've discussed last week and today, these are the warning signs, if you will. Beware, watch out, be careful. It's a warning to you in advance. In our last message, we considered, number one, lust. 
How many marriages have ended because of infidelity? Infidelity is the result of, it's the child of lust. James talks about sin in such a way that he says that lust in us, and as he introduces that, he says that God never tempts us, God never causes us to lust, but every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Lust conceives, that is to say we lust after something, and of course what we had reference to last week was physical affection. We lust after something, it conceives in the sense that you begin to think about it and desire something and focus on that, and then it brings forth sin. In other words, like a baby is born into the world, sin is born into the world because of what you were thinking about that is a result of lust when you were tempted. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. We gave the advice, rather than lusting after someone else, to find intimacy with your spouse. Rather than lusting after someone, enjoy intimacy with your spouse. It's a command of God, and if we don't, we defraud the other person. And so we are to give the affection that we have to our spouse. Secondly, we spoke about money, either wasting it or loving it. And I encourage you to live within your means, to avoid debt, to be content with such things as you have. And lastly, we considered substance abuse, drunkenness, drug abuse. And we are to abstain from addiction and drunkenness. This morning we finish our Killers of Marriage line of thought with two in particular, two killers of marriage. And the first one I've entitled... I've referred to as bad attitudes. None of us here ever get a bad attitude, right? In specific, bitterness and rebelliousness. Bitterness and rebelliousness. And two, others in our lives, such as our family and our friends. As we introduce bitterness and rebelliousness to you, the bad attitudes, these are just your general outright bad attitudes that you you and I might have. And the first one that we want to talk about is bitterness. The second one that we want to talk about is rebelliousness. And the words that we look at, that we zoom in on specifically today, are bitterness or hate. And secondly, contention, contentiousness. Now, Paul, in his writings, focuses on hate and bitterness as he speaks to husbands and he exhorts them to love their wives instead of hating their wives. But a wife can be bitter as well. A wife can be hateful as well. As we will look at Solomon's Proverbs, Solomon speaks about or wrote about being contentious and how it's a very bad, destructive thing for a wife to be contentious in the home. But a husband can be contentious too. And sometimes Solomon wrote about being a contentious man, an argumentative man. We don't want to be either type of person, a bitter person or a contentious person. Now, if I were to take a survey of what behaviors you have witnessed in American culture over the last six months, I guarantee you far higher than love and peace would be bitterness and contention. Anyone want to amen that one? We are a very bitter, contentious society, and from the very top of American politics on both sides all the way down. It's a trickle-down effect to everyone else in society. You have this bitterness and animosity and contentiousness and anger, name-calling, pettiness. It really is a sad time in American life. But as we talk about bitterness and rebellion, contentiousness, being rebellious one to another, these are just generally a bad attitude. Now, we have what we call in our house an attitude adjustment. I got that from my mother. She'd say, Ben, you need an attitude adjustment. You and I, from time to time, need an attitude adjustment. I need an attitude adjustment from time to time. You need an attitude adjustment from time to time. How do I know? Well, am I finding nothing but discord around me? Am I finding division around me? Is there contention? Is there anger? Is there hostility? Is there bitterness? If that's the case, then more than likely I might need an attitude adjustment. You say, no, those are all the other people around me who need an attitude adjustment. Well, that might be the case too. But if you are around bitter, contentious people all the time, guess what has a tendency to happen unto you? 
you can become bitter and contentious because evil communications corrupt good manners. The people that you keep company with affect you. You become the people you are around. Youngsters, I, I exhort my children about this all the time. I spy on people. I spy on their friends. I follow people on social media. And I listen. And I listen to what they say to Rachel, and I listen to what they say to their friends. And if I learn that there's a friend that's in the group that's not healthy for them to be around, I start exhorting them not to be around them. And so many times the reply that I get is, well, should we not be a good influence to people who live in our subdivision, people who are in the friend group? And I say, yes, you should be. But you need to be very careful because one of the two of you are influencing the other and if you don't find yourself influencing them, it might be that they are influencing you. You have to be careful and cautious. Bitterness and contention are one of those things that spreads like wildfire. It's contagious, especially when we see people that we look up to displaying those traits. <clears throat> now, I want to turn first to the book of Colossians chapter 3 as we consider just a moment the word bitter. I've always found it interesting that Paul uses this word. Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. Now, when we think about bitterness, as it is with us, so it was in the Greek language in Paul's day, the language from which this translates. This is a perfect translation of this word. The concept of something that was bitter had reference primarily to taste and secondarily to attitude. So if you think about things that are bitter, if I said, that's bitter, you would immediately think of foods that you do not like to taste. Earlier this year, my children got a bunch of candy, and all of the candy was based on things that were disgusting. I don't know who invented earwax-flavored candy. Everyone in here groans in disgust. And there were others that were worse. And I thought... What weirdo invented this candy? And I know it's a gag and it's funny, but wow, that stuff was disgusting. We can think of food, things that we've eaten, things that we've tasted that are very bitter. Not necessarily sour, but bitter. You know, there's a difference in sour and bitter. I like sour food. I like hot food. I'm not a big fan of that which is bitter. When we think about the word we think about things that are distasteful, things that don't sit well on our stomachs. But this word in Paul's day not only had reference to things that you taste and things that upset your stomach, it had reference to anger and hostility. And so a person could be bitter towards another, and the Greeks would use that word to take that dietary meaning, that flavor meaning, and then apply it to the way one person felt about another person or reacted to another person. That's exactly how we use the word today, bitter. We can be bitter towards another person. We react to them the same way that our tongues react to something that's disgusting in its flavor. Now, when Paul is writing the book of Colossians, he warns husbands not to be bitter against their own wives, but to love their own wives. Now, menfolk, think for just a second how that might apply to you. There's food that we know is bitter. We've tasted it before. We know we don't like it. It left a sour taste in our stomach. Our memory of it is poor. We reject it. We shun it. We don't want it. We don't want to taste it. We don't want to be around it. And the face that you make when you eat something bitter is what? Mm. That's the word Paul uses when he warns us to love our wives. Because if we don't, we can be bitter against them. Have you ever known a man who had that reaction to his bride? I have. And... Husbands, we all fight that battle of not being bitter to our wives. Now, I've known some very bitter wives, too. And a wife can be bitter against her husband. Bitterness is something that we have to mortify. But husbands, Paul says not to be bitter, but to love them 
which tells us that if you're being bitter, you're not loving them. Now, you might say, well, no, I love her. I just, I don't like her so much. I'm just bitter. I think I heard someone laugh in the other room. I love her. I just don't like her very much. Love, biblically, has less to do with a fuzzy feeling you have towards someone and the way that you treat them. And so to love someone biblically, you treat them with kindness and courtesy and compassion, and you desire what they enjoy, what they like, what benefits them more than what you want in that moment. Jesus Christ epitomized love And we are to love our wives as Christ loved the church. Don't you know that he had glory with the Father before the world began? He said as much in John chapter 17, Restore to me the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Jesus left the glory of heaven. The second person of the Godhead was conceived. He humbled himself. He made himself of no reputation, though he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. He became a man. Though he was completely God, he was also completely man. He walked some 33 years in this sin-cursed earth, sin all around him, walking through this marred creation, experiencing every negative this world had to offer. And then he went to the cross He endured the cross, despising the shame for the joy that was set before him of having you in heaven with him. That is my example of a husband. So it doesn't matter which one of us we think about or talk about, we all miss the mark. We all miss the mark because Jesus is the example. What does love look like, husbands? It looks like the Son of God leaving glory to not only die for his bride, not merely to go to battle and lose his life defending her, but paying the death sentence that she owed justly. And he endured that cross, despising the shame for the joy that was set before him. Husbands, that's our example of loving our wives. Be not bitter against them. But love them. Love them. Again, you treat them poorly when you are bitter. You treat them with resentment and open hostility. Perhaps passive aggressiveness. You know what passive aggressive means? It means indirect displays of hostility. Now, we're not very passive-aggressive in the Winslet house. We're pretty open in expressions of hostility around these parts. You know, we just kind of say it, and oops. And, you know, there are times that halfway after a sentence leaves Rachel's mouth that she's grabbing the words to try to put them back, and it doesn't work because they're already out there. You ever had those moments where you're like, I can't stop, I'm mid-word. Passive-aggressiveness is an indirect display of hostility. So many times the bitterness that a person has for another person presents itself in indirect displays of hostility. They're not going to come right out and say it. They're going to play little games with you to hurt you and attack you. Bitterness. Bitterness. Similarly, in the book of Ephesians chapter 5, where we've began every one of these messages on this subject through this series on marriage. Paul says in verse 25, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. There's our example. That he might sanctify and cleanse it by the washing of the water, by the word. That he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. Now listen, no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. You and I, men, we nourish and we cherish our what? Our flesh. We take care of our bodies. We don't want to mistreat our bodies. We want to 
take care. And you see this when a person is on their deathbed. Have you ever noticed that the majority of money that a man spends in his entire life is in the final years before he passes away? Why? Because he's clinging on to life. Now, there are some people in the world that become so overcome with grief that they seek to end their life. We understand that. And I saw a statistic recently that some 25% of young adults have contemplated taking their own life in this pandemic. Might I say that if there's anyone who's listening to me today, you are beloved, you are loved, you are cared for, and we will always be there to hear from you and listen to you and love you through that. Please do not ever contemplate or consider that. And there are some people in the world that enjoy pain and enjoy self-harm. But generally, as a general principle, men cherish and nourish their bodies. No man yet hateth his own body. By implication, then, we are not to hate our wives. We are to love our wives, even as Jesus loved the church. I should never respond to my wife in bitterness or hatred. It kills a marriage. If we get to that point, destruction lies at the door. And the only solution is repentance. Turn from that. But we also have rebellious contention. And as we speak along these lines, we want to focus on you sisters for a moment. On one hand, the head of the house can be bitter and hateful to his wife. On the other hand, the wife, and if, as you read here in Ephesians 5.22, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. We're all very familiar with it. It's very clear, Scripture is very clear on the roles of a husband and a wife in the household. Now, we are very specific to say that this doesn't mean the wife is a slave. She is what? The guard, the keeper. She keeps the home. The word means guard. And she is to manage the home. She is to manage the home, to guide the house, as we read. But it is second in command. To be second in command means there's what? A first in command. Who is first in command in the household? As a person, the husband. But the husband is not even in command of the household. Who is the head of the husband? The husband is Christ. If the husband is following Christ and is a servant, self-sacrificing leader, what then does that do for the wife's responsibility to submit to her husband? Well, it makes it so much easier. It makes it a joy because you have a man worth respecting who loves you and cares for you and provides for you. The book of Proverbs says a lot about things to watch out for as a wife. And I want to share a few of them with you today. Now, we already emphasize as we talk about the role of the wife, the book of 1 Peter chapter 3 and how Peter exhorted that a wife submits to her husband, but let it be the hidden man of the heart. In other words, let your submission to him and your love for him come from the depth of your heart. You're not pretending to be submissive while screaming at him on the inside, but you you mean it. You love him. You care for him. After all, he's all you have. Bless his heart. Pray for him. There's three proverbs that I want to share with you today as we look at the danger of being an unsubmissive wife. And by that, what's the word, what's the opposite of submissive? Rebellious. Rebellious. By the way, Scripture does not call us to be rebels. We are not called to be rebels. We are called to be submissive to proper authority. Is there a time to rebel? Yes, there's a time to rebel. When is it a time to rebel? When we ought to obey God rather than man. Otherwise, we pay our taxes. We say, yes, sir. We give you tribute to whom tribute is due, honor to whom honor is due. We put them in mind, you, to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates. That's what Scripture says. God created the institution of marriage. He created the institution of government. He he created the institution of the church. And there is submission to all three institutions that is proper and ordered in God's word. Proverbs chapter 27. Now, I hope that we laugh together through this one. The Proverbs are pithy. 
Sometimes they're funny. They make a point in an interesting way. And they're general statements of fact and truth, sometimes incorporating irony or even humor. I've said it many times before. I would encourage you to read a chapter of Proverbs a day. I've done this periodically in my life. If I don't have anything to read from Scripture, I'll pick up the Proverbs. If it's the 13th, the 14th, the 15th, pick that chapter and read that particular chapter. There are 31 chapters, and so in a 31-day month, you can read every chapter of the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 27, verse 15. A continual dropping in a very rainy day and a contentious woman are alike. How is a contentious woman like a rainy day? Now, I like rainy days. It was drilled into me when I was a land surveyor. Rainy days meant that we don't go spend sun up to sundown on a construction site, either in the 100-degree sun or the 20-degree cold. So when it rained, we would stay in the office and we would play video games and we would get paid. Now, I don't know about you, but getting paid to play video games seems like a pretty sweet deal. I love rainy days. I think one of the most peaceful, beautiful sounds in the world is rain. When you're sitting inside and there's a nice steady rain and you just hear it, maybe you've got a tin roof on your house and you just hear the rain on the tin roof. Why would Solomon compare a rainy day to a contentious woman? John Gill wrote, and this is what made me laugh. A continual dropping in a very rainy day and a contentious woman are alike. That is, through the roof of the house which is not well covered. Drip, 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 drip. Have you ever laid awake at night because there's water dripping and it drives you mad? You know they've used dripping water as torture in some cultures in human history? You hear the drip and it's... On a steady tempo. That's the sort of thing that I track down if I wake up and I hear it. Rachel's like, what do you do when I can't sleep? You slept through an earthquake in Los Angeles. No, but that dripping's got to stop. Drip, drip. A leaky roof causes destruction to a home is one understanding of that. But listen to what Gil points out about it. That is, through the roof of a house which is not well covered, it's leaking into the home or which lets in rain by one means or another, so that in a thorough rainy day it keeps continually dropping to the great annoyance of those within, that's the part that I laughed at first, and which is very uncomfortable to them, it is observed that rain is called by the name in the text, rain is called by name in the text, because a man is shut up under a roof, And it's continuing long. He is shut up within the doors and he cannot come out. In other words, he can't escape. And so a contentious woman is like when a man is stuck in a house and water is dripping through the roof, destroying the home and annoying everyone in there, making a mess out of everything, and no one can escape. Might I exhort you sisters never to be the type of mother that your husband and children cannot escape. They just can't wait to get away from you. I can tell you where that leads. It leads to being alienated from your children. God does not call us to be abusive, either in a physical sense or an emotional sense. And there is such a thing as an an emotional type of abuse. The rain continues to drop. The man cannot get away, and it drives him mad. Such a woman is troublesome and uncomfortable, As in a rainy day, a man cannot go abroad with any pleasure, and if the rain is continually dropping upon him in his house, he cannot sit there with any comfort. In other words, he can't leave and escape, but he can't sit in there with any comfort. So is a contentious woman that is always scolding and brawling. I began to laugh again. I'd love to tell you that people didn't come to mind. (laughs) 
But sometimes people come to mind when you read a passage. Have you ever known a woman that does nothing but constantly scold her husband? Might I remind you, sisters, that your husband answers to Christ. It's not your job to nag him like your oldest child. Because he isn't your oldest child. He's your husband. He's a man of authority in your home. Gill continues, a man has no comfort at home. If he goes abroad, he is jeered and laughed at by the account of others. Maybe I'm the only one who thought this is funny. And perhaps she the more severely falls on him when he returns home from having been abroad. In other words, there's absolutely no escaping her misery that she causes by reason of her contentious behavior. Now, by the way, Scripture speaks about contentious men as well. And husbands, this can apply to us too. Your wife hitting your kid. Your wife is a grown woman. And she doesn't need to be nagged at all the time either. Solomon is a man who writes this to a man. So obviously, he's writing to his son. He has a wife under consideration. But husbands, we can act like this too. And if we are, guess what we are doing? We're behaving in a bitter and hateful way to our wives Life becomes so much happier when we stop trying to micromanage everyone around us. We stop griping at everyone around us. And with the exception of sin, we just let people be themselves. If you want to know a secret to being a happy parent, let your children be themselves except for sin. You know... I'm a trumpet player. They don't have to play trumpet. Elijah does, and he really gears more towards classical playing, and I gear more towards big band swing playing. Lydia's a trombone player. She has posters on every square inch of her wall. She printed out over 150 on my printer. She used up an entire toner cartridge printing out pictures of albums, and she hung them on every square. Her ceiling is covered in pictures. Some of them she painted, some of them she printed out, but that's her. And I let her be her. There's nothing sinful about hanging stuff on your wall. And so if it makes her happy, great. I called Elijah at 9 o'clock this morning sweeping the floor in his room where there's a bed and a computer desk and a chest full of his clothes. And that's it. He doesn't want anything in his room. Total opposite of Lydia. Let people be themselves. You want to know a secret to happiness in life? With the exception of sin, let people be themselves. Some of you are A-type, some of you are B-type, and that's okay. I don't know what a schedule is. i got to do what? There are times that I'm so bad at scheduling, I schedule two things at the same time and don't realize it until i got to do one of the two things. We're all different. And understanding that and letting people be themselves is so key to being successful in your marriage. Listen, ladies, if your husband likes to hunt, unless he's forsaking the family, let him hunt. If he likes to fish, let him fish. If he likes cars, let him go look at cars. I knew a man who, he had a doctorate, Ph.D. holder. He was retired. He was an adjunct professor at a local college as a part-time retirement job. He played trumpet. Very good trumpet player. His wife... Their kids are grown and in college. His wife would hide his instruments so he couldn't go to rehearsal. He would get there late. Hey, man, you all right? Yeah, my wife hit my horn again. What nonsense is that? If it makes him happy and it's not destructive to the home, what's the big deal if he goes and plays his horn for two hours on a Thursday evening? And husbands, if your wife likes to go to yard sales and paint furniture, I, sh- I feel your pain. <laughs> but if it makes her happy, then let her do it. Avoid contention in the home. Mortify bitterness. Love them. And if it makes them happy, let them do it. I can't tell you how many colors the walls in my house have been painted. I was walking through taking a survey of everything that woman has done since we've been here for 14 years. I've got walls that are covered in material. There's no popcorn on the ceilings. They've been painted tans and grays and every other color. There's, I think we've had the stairs carpeted three or four times. 
You've got all these new doors that are installed and doors where there weren't doors, flat spots where there were closets. I wouldn't have done any of that, but it makes her happy. It makes the value go up on my home too, and I do like that because one day I might have to sell. It makes her happy. Why scold and nag and jeer? Why not just enjoy life together? I've said a lot of words about that, but if that point drives home to you, it will forever revitalize your marriage. It'll save your marriage. It'll start your marriage on the right footing. If I love you, I want you to be happy. And with the exception of sin, if it makes you happy, I should want you to do that. Let me give you a couple of other proverbs about contentiousness, and this is again written from a father to his son about a contentious woman. It is better to dwell in the corner of the housetop than with a brawling woman in a wide house. I don't know to what degree the woman is brawling. I don't know if she's actually physically violent or if she just constantly gripes. But it's better to be alone in a housetop. Now, what is the corner of the housetop? We have roofs that are angled with asphalt shingles or metal, and we have the attic with insulation and space for the heat and all of that. But in this day in Judea, the roofs had, or the buildings had flat roofs, and people would often resort there to think and to be alone. It was similar to the way that you might use your back porch on a cool fall morning where you go outside and you have a cup of coffee and you enjoy watching the world around you. You go there to relax, you go there to reflect. There are several examples in the New Testament of the housetop, the top of a home. Peter was praying there. A man broke through there to, or men broke through there to lower a man down that they wanted Jesus to heal as he was in the home. But one of the disadvantages of the housetop is that it exposes you to the wind, the rain, the sun as it beats down on you, the cold that could cause frostbite. In other words, it's better to be in solitary confinement exposed to the elements than in a luxurious home with a brawling woman, and I'd say a brawling husband as well. Skip down in the same proverb to verse 19, it is better to dwell in the wilderness than with a contentious and an angry woman. It's better for you to be homeless Better on your soul, better on your disposition, better on the peace and happiness of your life to be homeless than it is to dwell in a, implied here, a, a nice fancy house with a contentious and an angry woman. And by the way, Solomon knew a few things about women, how he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. And you were thinking he was the wisest man that ever lived. 700 wives. These wives caused him to leave off his devotion to Christ and allow idolatry, and because of that, the nation would be ripped in two as a judgment against them because of his leadership failures. It's better to dwell in the wilderness, better to be homeless in the middle of the woods than with a contentious and an angry woman. Husband or wife, let us understand how destructive contention is in our home. Now, what's the solution to that? Well, first of all, you need to esteem your partner better than yourself and have the mind of Christ. We quoted this verse a few times in this passage. Let this mind, or in the series, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ. He made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant. Philippians chapter 2. Paul exhorts us in Romans 12 not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, but to think soberly. We need to esteem our partner better than ourselves. Perhaps Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5 about loving our enemy could even apply. Matthew chapter 5, the closing verses 
You've heard that it has been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. If I'm to love my enemy, what does that say about the person I'm married to? You can read the rest of those passages on your own. Number two, filling your respective role in the marriage. And you might word this in a modern way, keeping the chain of command. There's a chain of command. But at the same time, every commander understands that the people who are, in a military sense, answering to him, you need to take their thoughts into consideration. Fools disregard everything that is told to them, and the multitude of counselors are safety. You want to work together in love, and you want to keep the chain of command. And number three, you want to always keep good communication. There should never be a time when a spouse cannot come to another, come to their spouse and say, I'm hurt by this, I'm worried about this, I'm concerned about this, I'm offended by this. And this applies to everyone else, people in the church, people in your workplace. We have to have effective communication. So many problems occur because people bottle it up. They put it in their mind. They don't let it go, and it eats at them, and eventually it festers to the point that it blows up. And that's when you have these moments that are destructive, so destructive to a marriage. Now, for the ten minutes that we have remaining, the last of these killers of marriage that we want to look at, and we didn't save a whole lot of time for it, is the outside influences, friends and family. Now, family, extended family, in-laws, moms and dads, brothers, sisters, cousins, friends, or best friends, they can be one of the greatest blessings in a marriage or one of the greatest hindrances to peace in a marriage. And I have seen both. I've seen cases where the family patriarch and matriarch are such a blessing, they're such a help, they're such an encouragement and a support, for a new couple, or maybe even an old couple. But I've seen times, I've seen cases and examples where the patriarch and matriarch, the in-laws, if you will, are destructive. I've known cases where the brother-in-law and sister-in-law creates drama and tension in the home and fighting and division and, to quote Scripture on another subject, my brethren, these things all not be. As we begin thinking about this killer of marriage, let me just say that marriage is as big of an adjustment for those in your life as it is for you. Now, I can say this with experience now because I have a married child. And it's been a great blessing for us. It's been a great blessing for us. I became a grandfather in April because my son has taken that sweet little girl who's sitting with my wife as, as his own daughter, and she's just like one of my own children. And we love that little girl. What a blessing it is. But you know, it's an adjustment. I prepared for that adjustment my entire adulthood. Psalm 127 is a psalm that we'll talk about, Lord willing, next week. As arrows in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. What do you do with an arrow? You whittle it down, you prepare it, you put a broadhead on it, you put the feathers on it, and then you do what with it? You let it go. And pray it in a boomerang. <laughs> Get that arrow straight. <laughs> so it can fly and hit the target you're aiming at. You let go. I prepared for that my whole life. I don't think it an understatement to say I'm a big force in my children's lives. Dad. But one day, Dad doesn't control his kids anymore. Sonny Powell said that there's an age where you control your kids, and there's an age when you make suggestions to your kids, and there's a day when you influence your kids. That day of control comes to an end. And then you tell them what to do, and you chasten them, and you 
try to guide them and steer them, but there comes a day when all you can do is hope to influence them in a positive way. And those are the great days, too, because they come to you and they say, Dad, what do you think about X, Y, Z? It's a miracle, dads, that there comes a day when they actually ask your advice if they see what you practice in your life works. But it's a huge adjustment to go from telling them what time to be home at night, telling them what to do, telling them who they can be around, to saying goodbye and leaving them to the two decades of training that you gave them. It can be one of the most blessed occasions in a man's life because you have all this time and you can go do stuff you couldn't do before. Anyway, sometimes friends and family might even be jealous and divisive. Now, I heard Elder J. Vernon McGee one time quote a lady, and she said, don't make me one of your sermon illustrations. And the irony is on the radio in front of millions of people, he made her one of his sermon illustrations. Always say names are protected or changed to protect the guilty. And I usually only reserve this sort of thing for people that don't listen and don't care and don't like me anyway. I have known adults, I'm talking about 50-year-old men, whose dads still interject themselves in the marriage so much that the wife is miserable, the son is miserable, but the son and his wife can do nothing without the father's permission because he has to micromanage everything they do or else, oh, or else, there will be knockdown, down, drag out, stomp around fights about it. And so he keeps them in check by his bad behavior and he has to control them. Dads, when that child gets married, they left father and mother. Those are the words of the Bible. To do what? Cleave unto wife and be one flesh. We no longer have that relationship when our child gets married. Young folks, when you get married, that relationship is no longer the same. Don't let me make you mad, parents. But when your child gets married, children... You don't ask mom and dad's permission anymore. That's an adjustment for some parents. I had a friend in school that was so afraid of his mother-in-law that he was having dreams that he went on his honeymoon and she went with him. (laughs) That sort of thing happens. Stereotypes exist for a reason. As far as friends... We didn't really have much of a problem with that when Rachel and I got married because Rachel and I were in the friend group. She was one of the guys. Everywhere we went before she and I were a a couple, we would go and she would be there with us. In fact, that was the first technical date we went on. It was two of my buddies and Rachel. I had a plan, but she didn't know anything about it. It went to a movie. I still have the ticket stub in my wallet. I won't tell you what movie we saw. I'll tell you after. But sometimes when a couple gets married, you have a group of friends that absolutely cannot stand that. Husbands, when you get married, you leave and cleave to your wife, not the bros. What's up, bro? Bruh, go home. Bruh, I got a wife. Bruh, you ain't it. (laughs) There's nothing wrong with having friends. I have friends. We play video games. The once or twice a year I'm able to go down and hang out with them. We have a great time. We never had that sort of tension with us. But there are some friends that just become destructive. You never hang out with us. You want to spend more time with your wife. Well, yeah. It's a lot more fun with her than you, you know. I mean, we're, we're together. We're a couple. Read between the lines. If it's playing video games on my couch or hanging out with my wife, I'm going to hang out with my wife. There's an adjustment. We spend a lot of time talking about this when we counsel. But I just remind you that if you are married, you have left father and mother to cleave unto your wife. And you are one flesh with that spouse. Now, those of us that are parents with children who are married or getting married, we have to prepare ourselves for that painful moment. It's an adjustment. Think about it. You spend 20 years, give or take, with that rascal. And then he up and leaves. And he doesn't care what you think anymore. 
In reality, he does. If we do this right, they come back and they ask and they love you. And besides, who can beat a free babysitter, right? That's our excuse. We, we keep them, we give them sugar, we send them home. It's the greatest blessing of having a grandchild. It's like all the joys of having a kid, but you don't have to wake up in the middle of the night. You don't have to feed them. I don't even have to change diapers. All I do is play. Grandparents all say amen. So how do we prevent that? Well, a lot more we could say about it, but we keep in mind that a married couple is its own autonomous body. If you're the parent like me, or if you're the newly married person, you keep in mind that that union is a new union. They are the same as you and your wife. They are now free. You've let go of the arrow. Pray to God that you straightened it out so it hits the mark. And you cleave unto each other, not your friends, not your parents. Oh, you still go to them all the time. You still love each other. Don't dismiss that. And by the way, you have a responsibility to honor your father and your mother, even though you've left them to cleave unto your wife. But when that couple comes together, they are the unit that is to be protected and defended. That is the relationship that is to be encouraged above all other relationships for those two people. I suppose the thing that you could say there is that we must, as husbands and wives, have boundaries that we put up, and we as parents, siblings, and friends must respect those boundaries because they are ordained of God. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you, Lord, and we thank you for these Biblical warnings and admonitions, we know, Father, that our marriages are to glorify you, that your Son is to be glorified in all that we do. Lord, we want to have marriages that are enjoyable. We want to have marriages that are peaceful. We want to have marriages where love just permeates everything that we do. It's hard, Lord, to sometimes look at our own mistakes and our own faults and failures we can all be bitter, we can all be hateful, we can all be contentious. Help us, Lord, to submit one to another and to you. Lord, help us to cleave unto our spouse, that we might be one flesh. Help those of our family and friends to understand that we have this peace that is to be a multi-generational experience in the Lord as we are together as Christian homes from the great-grandparents down to the little ones, respecting your word, honoring your word, and submitting to you. Forgive us of our many sins. We have failed in this so often. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.